All right, take your Bibles and turn with me back to the first epistle to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter number 3 is where we'll be this evening. First Corinthians chapter number 3. As we continue our march through this book. Last Lord's Day, uh, we began a section which we entitled, Putting Preachers into Perspective. And that section was 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. And uh, we were not able to uh, make it all the way through that section, so we're going to continue on and uh, finish up that passage of Scripture this evening. I'm going to read the whole section to you, uh, verses 5 through 9, but our Our focus tonight will be on verses 7, 8, and 9 as we finish up that section uh, moving through the third chapter. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, these are the words of God. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are our God's building. The famous inventor Samuel Morse was once asked if he ever encountered situations where he didn't know what to do. Morse responded, more than once. And whenever I could not see my way clearly, I knelt down and prayed to God for light and understanding. Morse was a phenomenal inventor in the early 1800s. And he received many, many honors from his invention of the telegraph. But he always felt very undeserving of these accolades. And he said this, I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant this invention for mankind, must reveal it to someone. And he was pleased to reveal it to me. Friends, that is the attitude of a gospel minister. We are not to take the attitude that, well, look at all we have done bringing sinners into the kingdom. Look at all we have done in planting a church. Look at all we have done in advancing the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, we are to look at it as Samuel Morse looked at it. God decreed from before the foundations of the world that He was going to save sinners by His Son, that He was going to establish a kingdom of Christ, and that Christ was going to plant His church. He was just pleased to use us in the process. We looked at this text last week under three headings. The first was that of instruction in verse 5, where we saw that Paul challenged the Corinthians with, these rhetorical questions, putting himself and putting Apollos into perspective. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? 
And the answer was simply ministers by whom ye believe. They were not party leaders. They were not superheroes. They were not mega ultra Christians. No, they were faithful men used by a good God. And then Paul, in our, under our second heading of illustration, Paul used this analogy of agriculture. He said in verse 6, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Oh, to understand the ministry the way a farmer understands the soil. A farmer tills the ground and plants the crop and waters the crop and nurtures the field and does all that he can in his human capabilities to ensure a successful harvest, but the farmer is not responsible for the growth of the crop because the farmer cannot grow plants. The farmer cannot grow food. All he can do is all the preparatory work, but only God gives life. That's true in every realm. And so we see Paul using this analogy that would have been very familiar to his audience. And I think here in West Tennessee, we understand that as well, do we not? And then the last heading, which we did not get to the previous Lord's Day, was that of implications from this text. Implications. As we finished the illustration, we noticed that our time was fleeting. And uh, with not wanting to be here until midnight, we decided that we would put off the implications for the next time we met together and studied this text. So that is what I want to consider tonight, the implications from this text, the so what of this instruction. Ministers are but instruments in the hands of God, so what? So what? And there's five implications I want to give to you, beginning in verse 7. And Paul really sets it up as a section dealing with implications because he begins by saying, so then. When you, when you see words like, so then, or therefore, one, one professor said something very, uh, very easy to remember. He, he told me, he said, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to look and see what it is there for. Therefore. So, so then, so what? So then, Paul says, implication number one. Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth. The implication number one is this. The gospel minister is nothing. He is nothing. Paul had his job. Apollos had his job. But those jobs were not anything compared to the workings of God Almighty. As we've already established, a faithful gospel preacher is worth his weight in gold. He, he really is. Paul is not saying in this text that a minister is, is worthless or useless to the congregation or that it does not matter if you have a faithful pastor. Paul is not arguing these things, but Paul is teaching that in light of what God does, the pastor is infinitesimally insignificant. In light of the workings of God, the pastor is nothing. The preacher is nothing. The minister is nothing. And Paul is using some, some I guess you could say some, some extravagant language. He is overemphasizing this point. And he's downplaying the importance of pastors in order to deflate the pride of the Corinthians. He says they're not anything. You are giving your glory to the wrong one. You are glorifying a mere man. And this mere man has done nothing for you compared to what God has done for you. 
we must remember that converts are God's converts. Disciples are God's disciples. Church members are members of God's church. And we have no right to take credit for the things that we didn't do. Some of you are here tonight. Now, I would almost say almost every one of you is here tonight because someone told you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and then someone, perhaps that other person is also here tonight, told you about this church and invited you to come and maybe you came from down the street or maybe you came from across the country but someone invited you here and you came and you're sticking around so you must not be entirely miserable and you might have the tendency to think I'm here because so-and-so invited me here and brought me here and told me to come here and that's why I'm here. You might think, well, I'm a Christian because my friend told me about Jesus and if it wouldn't be for him, I I wouldn't be a Christian. And I, I want to be careful in how I say this because there's no doubt that that friend of yours was providentially used by God And there is a sense in which they were essential to your conversion, to your church membership. But they were not indispensable. They were essential, but not indispensable. What do I mean by that? The only one dispensable in the equation is God. God could have used any means that He so was pleased to use to save your soul and place you in the church. He could have used any means. He just so happened to use the particular means that he used for you. And so you don't want to look at that friend that first told you about the gospel of Christ or that preacher that first preached righteousness to your heart or that one that first invited you to the church. You don't want to look at them as uh, someone who is useless. Forget about that guy. I've got me and Jesus. Remember, uh, one one of the schismatic groups in the Corinthian church. Do you remember what it was way back when we were still in the first chapter? Probably the worst of the divisive groups was that group that thought they were so spiritual that they just said, well, we are Christ's. We don't need any any man to preach anything to us. We don't need any spiritual leaders to teach us anything. We're of Christ. That's all we need. Me and my Bible. So we don't want to have that attitude, but we want to remember that if we have truly believed And if we have truly desired to worship, if we have truly desired to be a part of the body of Christ, the visible body of Christ in the world, that is a result of what God has done. Not any man or woman. And so the gospel minister is nothing. That is what Paul is saying here. That's implication number one. And we need to put ministers into perspective. In this society of celebrity status preachers, in this society of, of just, we live in a, in, a, in a time, in a day and age, in which someone can literally become a celebrity practically overnight. Think about, think about this. And I'm not just talking about in the secular world. I'm talking about in the ecclesiastical Christian world. Think about this. One of the greatest preachers that ever lived was a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I've quoted him many times from this pulpit. You, you've read him. You know him. man preached in the 1800s. 
You realize if Spurgeon preached a sermon on the Lord's Day at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, he had someone in the church that uh, transcribed everything he preached. So his sermons were immediately recorded. They were written down and then they were sent to publish. Do you realize that for an American to get a copy of a sermon Spurgeon preached, it might take weeks, it might be a month before that sermon that was transcribed goes to the press, is printed, is distributed, gets on a boat, sails across the ocean, comes to America, winds up in some newspaper, and then we might be reading a sermon for the very first time that Spurgeon preached six months ago. Well, what age do we live in now? We live in an age now where if, if I wanted to, I could take this sermon that I'm preaching right now and I could have it on YouTube within five minutes of the end of our service accessible to the whole world. And, and that's a great blessing. I, I believe it is. I believe God providentially has placed us in 2021 and given us these tools and we ought to use them for His glory. And guess what? We do upload our sermons on Sermon Audio. We do put them on the internet. But it can also be very dangerous. Prosperity has killed many faithful men. Pride goes before a fall. And you get a few too many clicks on the link. You get a few too many congratulatory pats on the back. And you begin to think, that you're something more than what the Bible says you are. If I preach to 15 people, or if I preach to 1,000 people, or if I preach to 15 people and it's recorded and then 10,000 people listen to it, it doesn't matter. I'm nothing. You are nothing in that regard. This church is nothing. It is God. It is God. That's the first implication. The second implication follows logically and contextually. The gospel minister is nothing. Number two, God is everything. We see that in verse 7. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. There's that famous Bible phrase, but God. A glorious two words. Whenever we see that in the Word of God, we should always take note. But God. Divine intervention. Paul says, yes, I did plant the seed. I did establish the church. And yes, Apollos watered. And yes, Apollos did continue the work. Yes, all of this is true. But it was God that caused it. To grow. This verse implies that God is everything because God alone gives the increase. God is the true worker. God is the sovereign force that propels any ministry. God is the one who causes things to happen. We see that throughout history. We see it in the Bible. I was reading through Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you're going to preach to the whole nation of Israel. And none of them are going to hearken. None of them are going to listen. None of them are going to believe. Ezekiel, you're not going to have a big evangelistic ministry. Ezekiel, you're not going to plant a big, thriving, prosperous church in Henry County, Tennessee. No, Ezekiel, you're going to preach 
your heart out, your lungs out, and no one is going to listen to you. Does that mean Ezekiel was a bad preacher? Does that mean Ezekiel was, uh, was a compromiser? No, that means that God gives the increase. And as a judgment upon the nation of Israel, God did not give an increase to that ministry of Ezekiel. He accomplished his purpose. Don't get me wrong. The word never returns, again, void. But the purpose of Ezekiel's message, and read the book, read the prophets, was not one of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We must think of these things in terms of we are nothing and God is everything. We should never measure the success of our ministry by the numbers that our ministry has. Because here's what will happen. You will have some men that will say, we are so successful because we're drawing the big crowds while they're truly compromising, while they're truly preaching lies, while they're truly tickling ears. But on the flip side of that, and I've seen this just as much as I've seen the first, you will have some men who are jealous when they see God working in other places. And they will say, those people down the street are growing, they must be compromising. I've been asked by uh, older pastors, pastor in other parts of the country, who believe essentially a lot of the same things that we believe. And do you realize that one of the one of the pressing problems in a lot of churches across America is that the average age of a church member is 50, 60, 70. And they look out and the congregation is aging and there's not much energy and there's not very many new faces or young people to continue it. And I've had pastors say to me that unless God does something big and sends a, an influx of young people into our church, we might not be around in 10 years. And they've asked, they've said, you have a handful of younger people that attend very faithfully, Wednesday night, Sunday night, special events, and you just started up six months ago, seven months ago. What are you doing? You must be doing something special. You must be doing something different. What are you doing to attract this demographic? And I simply tell them, I do what you do. I show up week in and week out. And I, I pr preach expositorily through the Word of God. We sing robust hymns. We fellowship with one another. And we fulfill the work that Christ has given us in the commission. That's what we do. But God has given the increase. And you might look around and you might say, well, it's not a very big increase. But again, you've just missed what I've said. We're not quantifying what God has done. We're not putting a number on what God has done. We're just thanking Him for the increase and we're praying that He'll continue to give the increase. I've seen Him give the increase in your own hearts and lives. I've seen the lights turn on week in and week out as you are attentive to the Word of God. I, one of the joys of being able to stand behind this pulpit week after week is to literally see your soul increase right before me as the Word is preached. To see faces that once were just plain confused to suddenly be smiling and to be nodding 
to see eyes that were looking around the room, to suddenly be tuned in and locked in and even have a glimmer in them? What is that? Is that something I'm doing? No, friend, that's God giving the increase. And he's just been pleased to use us, to use this church, to use this ministry to do that for you. And I trust that he'll continue to do that for others as we stay faithful to him. God is the one who causes growth. All we do is sow seed. All we do is cast nets. All we do is knock doors. All we do is share the message. God is the only one who can cause our efforts to take effect in the hearts and lives of others. Without God, our preaching would just be filling this room with hot air. Without God, our singing would just be meaningless noise. Without God, baptism would just be getting wet. Without God, doctrine and theology would just be useless information. Without God, the Bible itself would just be wasted ink on pointless pages. Without God, the church would be a social club. Without God, ministry would just be a vocation. Without God, the cross itself would just be a bizarre death of a carpenter from Nazareth. But beloved, God is at the forefront of all of these things in a place of unequaled preeminence. And there is divine power when God gives the increase. Therefore, because God is everything, because He is all in all, He is to receive all honor, all glory, all praise, and all thanksgiving because we are nothing and God is everything. The third implication from verse 8. Gospel ministers are united. Gospel ministers are united. And let me clarify something that we talked about in the previous message in this series. When we talk about gospel ministers, the primary thrust of that is, yes, those who hold the office of elder or pastor in a local church. That is the primary thrust. But we define that word minister as simply one who applies something else. He's one who administers something else. And that is simply the gospel. So this application... I believe it's right to understand it to apply to all believers who are faithfully putting forth the message of the gospel. And we must understand that gospel ministers are united. Verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Whole sermons could be and should be preached on this one thought alone. We live in an age that is really not much different than first century Corinth. Churches go out of their way to be divisive, schismatic, and uncharitable. Not towards unbelievers, but towards other churches and other Christians and other pastors who believe and practice just like them on 95% of the issues. And it ought not be that way, beloved. It's a shame that it is so. And I could share anecdote after anecdote that illustrates this point. There's some things that just don't have to be shared with everyone. There's some things that, that I just don't have to necessarily lay upon your back. But you would think that the work of God here in Paris would be a blessing 
you'd think that people would see things like a baptism or see things like people coming to unite with the church. First generation Christians coming to unite. You'd think that people would just say, what a blessing that is. But it's no surprise to me that there are even those who look at something like that and pick through it just to find fault. And let me tell you, I've, I've not faced any opposition from the cults. I've not faced any opposition from the atheist society. They've never come to me and said, we don't like what you're doing. But I have faced opposition from other pastors in other churches who, on paper, believe like I do and like we do on 90, 95% of all the major issues. And you ask, why is it that way? Why must it be that way? It's because we forgot the implication that gospel ministers are united. He that planteth and he that watereth are one. This carnal division amongst ourselves, it slaughters our testimony before an unbelieving world. Why would someone want to be a Christian when all they see are Christians who are always at each other's necks? This age of polemics and this age of writing blogs and books to lambast and castigate other faithful men is killing our testimony in the world. And we desperately need to hear Paul's remedy to this situation. The Corinthians have divided themselves into groups of church members who like one preacher over another, uh, over petty doctrines that have their place, but at the end of the day should not be things that we would break fellowship with other believers over. And, And we turn around and we do the same thing. And what Paul points out to them is the stupidity of of doing such a thing on the account of the fact that all true ministers are working for the same end and the same goal. I want to see sinners come to know Christ and serve Christ and live a holy life that's pleasing unto Christ and some other brother in another town that's doing the same thing and wants to see the same thing happen in his town. I'm for that guy. I support that guy. You say, well, what Bible translation does he use? I don't care what Bible translation he uses. I'm for that guy. You say, well, does he wear a suit and tie when he preaches? I don't care what he wears when he preaches. I'm for that guy. On and on we could go. God is the one who commissions all true ministers. Therefore, to try to pit God-called ministers against one another is simply an attempt to get God to fight with himself, which he will not do. Do you understand what I just said? If God calls someone into the ministry, it is God who gives them their assignment. And if God has called two men into the ministry, and we want to pit those two men against each other, we're forgetting that they're both serving the same master. And God is not divided against himself, and he never will be, and he cannot be. And we need to do all that we can to get along and coexist and love and pray for and support faithful ministers who preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I understand that practically our church fellowship will be very limited. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. We're a Baptist church. We believe that 
that baptism should only be administered to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and desire to unite with his church. And so there are some practical difficulties that would come into effect if we tried to do evangelism with a Presbyterian church. There's a faithful one down the road. But why, why, why might there be an issue? Well, because when someone comes to faith in Christ, we're going to have serious disagreements on what must necessarily take place after that. We're going to say that he needs to be immersed into water and join the church. And the Presbyterian will say, no, actually, he doesn't need to be immersed. He needs to be sprinkled, and so do his kids. And we would have to say, sorry, can't go that mile with you. So there might be some practical hindrances to what we're able to do together, but that is not to say that we're enemies. That's not to say that we're fighting on separate teams or that we're looking to do different things. Not at all. Not at all. And any faithful paedo-baptist church that preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ, I, I hope God blesses their work. I hope God glorifies His Son in their ministry. We must not look to brothers like that as our enemies. We must realize that in the sovereign purposes of God, we're all one at the end of the day. He that plants and he that waters are one. We are one with all those who preach salvation by the free and unmerited grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the practice of the apostles. I believe that should be our practice today. There's only one standard of truth, and all those who cling to that truth are united. Fourth implication. And I know I'm opening cans of worms as I go and not fully closing them back up. But that's okay. Fourth implication. Gospel ministers are individually accountable. So do you, do you see how these implications are? They're not contradictory, but they're parallel. So there's, there's one implication that we are all one. And now we're going to see that we all receive an individual reward. Just like we saw uh, the implication that the gospel minister is nothing and God is everything. Gospel ministers are individually accountable. In verse 8, he says, we're all one, but at the end of the verse he says, and every man, singular, shall receive his own reward. And again, this is true not just of pastors, though especially true of pastors, but this is true of all Christians. Though we're all united in purpose, we will all stand alone before Christ on the day of judgment. I want you to know that the judgment for believers will be dramatically different than the judgment for unbelievers. Very different. Some could even argue two separate events. And our ministries, what we have done in the service of Christ... I'm speaking now of that judgment for believers, will be examined according to the standard that Christ has given in His Word, and we will give an account for how we ministered. We will stand before Christ, and this book will be opened up, and everything we ever did will be measured in accordance with this book. 
And that is a terrifying reality. Because as hard as people are on you, God is more so. Nobody demands more of you than he does. Because nobody has given more to you than he has. And to whom much is given, much is required. And you must stand before God with your life in view, all that you have done, and you must give an account for whether or not or to what degree your life was lived for the glory of Christ. And that is a a sober reality. That is something that we should do our best to remember every moment of every day. But friend, not only is it fearful, it is also immensely comforting. Because it is Christ who has the last say on your life. When you stand before judgment, it will not be the person sitting next to you that is evaluating you. It will not be the naysayers. It will not be the gainsayers. It will not be those who uh, tried their best to discourage you from following Christ. It will not be those who say, you're wasting your life serving Jesus. It will not be those who have the final say. It will be Christ and Christ alone. And there will be times in your Christian life in which you will feel as if you are entirely misunderstood by everyone around you. You know in your heart of hearts that you are doing what you think is best in the eyes of King Jesus. But it seems as if everyone around you just does not understand why you are making a certain decision, why you are taking a certain course of action. Some of the most frustrating times that we go through as believers. And Christian, I want to encourage you that when the world stands in opposition against you, Jesus sees the content of your heart and he knows your desire to please him. What a comfort that is. And when you stand before Christ, what a day of vindication that will be. I believe that your life as it it will be unfolded, all of those times in which you glorified Christ in your life, in your walk, in your thoughts, in your decisions, that will all be made manifest. And you will be proved as one who truly did love Christ or one who didn't. Notice the content of this judgment, the rubric of this judgment at the end of verse 8, according to his own labor. You will be judged based upon that which you have done. Again, not upon, not upon the results. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but God tries the heart. A preacher will not be approved before Christ on the day of judgment because he had a big fancy building or a nice bank account or a large congregation of faithful, devoted followers. No, he will be judged according to his labor. Did he labor in the word? Was he faithful in prayer? Did he love the flock? And a man who preaches the truth and never has one convert shall receive a reward on the day of judgment. But the man who builds a massive following and a religious empire upon lies and manipulation will stand condemned by Jesus Christ. If we grow, may we grow by the blessings of God, not by compromise. Because there is a day of reckoning for preachers 
and for Christians. And if we are divisive, if we neglect the church, if we're lazy in our study, if we're shy in our devotion, if we do not stand for righteousness according to the word, we will have to answer to the head of the church on that day. We are accountable to him alone. He defines the task. He assigns the pay. Therefore, we must seek to please him above all. And if you are pleasing Christ, it does not matter who you displease. But if you are not pleasing Christ, it does not matter who you please. And all Christians will stand before that judgment seat on that day and their works will be judged in accordance to the degree in which they were faithful to the commission of Christ. But I must also tell you that there are also going to be those who will stand on the day of judgment outside of Christ. Do you know how many good works they will have? Not a single one. All their righteousness, all their supposed righteousness, the Bible says in Isaiah, will be as filthy rags before a holy God. They too will give an account. This is a fearful thing. Consider this. There's no comfort in this. This is only terror. They too will give an account. of Everything they've ever done, said, thought, desired, loved, and their life will be exposed as an open book before the holiness of God, and they will have no advocate. Uh, they will have no covering. They will have no mediator. They will have no savior. Why? Because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ in their life on earth. They rejected the one mediator between God and man. And, and they will too be evaluated according to their own labor. But it will not be measured in the extent to which they glorify Christ. It will be measured between righteousness and unrighteousness. And the Bible says, who can stand before such a judgment? No one. I pray that you're not in that group. And I pray that if you are in that group, you see your need of a Savior to cover you with His righteousness on the day of judgment. And that you flee to such a one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fifth and final implication. God is to receive all the glory for the results of the ministry. What a wonderful implication to end on. Verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. I need to clarify this first phrase. This first phrase carries more the idea not of workers alongside and equal to God. It's not saying that uh, we are laborers working on the same level with God. I know that that's how our translation might have us to read it if we're not careful. Rather, the idea is that we are co-workers, co-laborers underneath the headship of God. That is really what the verse is teaching. And perhaps you're looking down and you're seeing something that says, uh, we are God's workers. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. And, and that's really more in line with the spirit of the text. The original literally reads, of God, fellow workers are we. That's literally what it reads. We are fellow workers who belong to God. And we work with God 
only in the sense that the ministry is God's work and redemption is God's plan and the gospel is God's message and it is God who is primarily advancing these things. The best we can do is join into that work. The best we can do is find out what God is doing and take part in it. The highest calling that you could ever attain to in this life is to be a participant of what God is doing in the world. You'll never be able to do anything on your own of more worth or of more eternal value. But when churches grow, when sinners are saved, when lives are changed, because we are fellow workers, we're not to say that that's something we accomplished. No, God accomplished it. He used us in the process. That's the the gist of this first phrase. We are laborers together with God. We are God's laborers. And when we rightly understand this verse, we see that this verse really is a triad. There's three statements here, and the commonality in all these statements is the possessive, theu, God's. God's workers, that's what we are. God's husbandry, that's what the church is. God's building, that's what the congregation is. We are God's workers. You are God's husbandry. We are God's husbandry. We are God's building. What is a husbandry? I like that word. I'm glad that that is kept in there. A husbandry. It is a vineyard. It is, a, it is farmland. But this idea of husbandry is, is containing the sense that it is farmland or it's a vineyard that is rented out or leased out for other workers to work. So we are the ones who are working this field. That's why I don't want this to just say we are God's vineyard because there's something more than just that. We are God's husbandry in the sense that we are God's field. We are the workers that work the field, but we work underneath God, the master of the field. Paul is circling back around to this agricultural analogy that states that he who makes the crops grow owns the field. What a a father's say to their children. Well, he who pays the bills, he who puts the groceries on the table, he makes the rules, right? How much more so is that true in the economy of grace, in the family of God? Uh, I I, want to say that it was J.I. Packer, but I might be wrong about it. But he was conversing with someone about... Uh, the debate between atheism and evolution. And they were going back and forth, creationism, evolution, creationism, evolution. And uh, J.I. Packer made the statement that only God creates. Only God creates. And and the uh, opposite fellow said, no, uh, man has the ability to create. I can uh, can create so many different things with wood and uh, materials. And and, uh, J.I. Packer says, that's fine. Go ahead and make something. Use your own dirt, though. Use your own dirt. What is, it, what is he saying? Can we make something out of what God has given us? Absolutely. But it is only God who is that initial source of life and growth. We are God's husbandry. Then he says, ye are God's building. This is a common analogy for the local church. A, a, a building. Not physical walls of wood, but people that come together, that are integral parts of 
the body. They are all pieces necessary to make this building. The church is God's. The flock is God's. The field is God's. The ministry is God's. The credit and honor and glory and results are God's. And if it feels like we're repeating this point, it's because we are. It's because Paul is. He repeated this point in order to get it through the thick skulls of the Corinthians. And by the grace of God, may we get this through our skulls as well. We need this message. You say, well, we're so small. We're meeting in this humble little storefront. Yes, but we need this message. And if we think we don't need it, we really need it. This text puts preachers into perspective. It puts Christians into perspective. And we so desperately need these things because our spiritual growth and our health as a church and all that we are will ever be in the hands of a sovereign Lord. We need to know that. We need to trust in that. May that encourage us. And may we serve in faithful humility, believing in the goodness of God and the exceeding greatness of His glory. May God be honored with all that we do. And by knowing that it is God who is the ultimate cause, that does not cause you to sit and twiddle your thumbs and think, well, if God's going to do it, there's no point in me participating. What a fool. Because you have the privilege. God doesn't need you. That's the glorious part about it. He doesn't need you. But He is inviting you. He's giving you the opportunity, the privilege to serve. There will be many Christians. You know, there's not going to be a single Christian on the Day of Judgment that will regret the things they did in the service of Christ. But I believe there will be many on the Day of Judgment to whom Christ will say, Yes, you're my child. You have believed in the Gospel. You are saved but as they look back and reflect upon their life they will realize that they could have done a lot more in the service of Christ oh to hear the words well done thou good and faithful servant may we stand before Christ on that day with no regrets may we stand before Christ on that day astonished at all that he's done in us, for us, and through us. And may we then, with a crown of life, with a crown of service, with all of the things that God did through us, may we then take that bundle of accomplishment in the splendors of heaven, and may we walk up to the throne of Jesus Christ, and may we kneel down and cast those crowns at His feet. Let us pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for your goodness to us as a people. We thank you for calling us into your service. We thank you for calling us into the ministry of the gospel. Oh, to God, that we would be faithful servants, that we would do the work that you've given us to do, that we would remember that you are the one to whom all the glory belongs, all the honor belongs. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to believe it, to trust in it, to tell others about it. You're a good father. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.